Do you ever have any trouble getting along with people? Nah, that's not y'all, right? None of us have problems with that. Every now and then we have a little trouble getting along. Japan and South Korea are two of the most significant uh, allies that we have in the United States. But right now, Japan and South Korea aren't really getting along. What's the problem? What is it that they're not getting along about? Why are these two countries at odds? Well, the problem, what they're at odds over, is 37 rocks. That's right, 37 rocks. Two really big rocks and then 35 smaller rocks. And all of these rocks are sitting out in the middle of the ocean between South Korea and Japan. We have these, these rocks sitting out in the ocean that they're actually arguing over. There is a problem with the rocks. Those rocks sit on about 46 acres of land. So all of those rocks together, it's only about 46 acres. That's about the, the same size as the grounds of the White House. It's a little less than half the size of the state fairgrounds just down the road. Or to put it more practically, locally, it would be like about 15 to 17 of our church property. So just a little mental picture here because I wanted to do a map. If you start on our property and kind of go from here across the street and go on the other side of the Autism Society and then you go all the way down past Zestos and, and then back up around a little bit toward this way and come back down to our church, that's about 50 acres. And if you're a civil engineer, you're going, no way, that's not 50 acres. So that's okay. Don't quote me on that in the paper this week. But give or take, a little less than 50 acres in that time frame. We have this small area that goes by three different names. The South Koreans call it Takto. The Japanese call it Takashima. And I'm going to go with the European Western name, and that is the Leoncourt Rocks. That's what they're called, the Leoncourt Rocks. Now, the Leoncourt Rocks have been in the possession of South Korea now since the early 1950s. A, a treaty came in, and, and that treaty gave them control. But before that, Japan was in control of the Leoncourt Rocks. It's reported that only about two or three people live amongst those 37 rocks. But there is a police base with more than 30 police guards at it. That's a couple of rowdy people, right? I mean, they have to have more than 30 policemen just for two or three people. South Korea has also opened up tourism on the rocks. Did you forget a Valentine's gift yesterday? Did, did you mess up? Well, if so, I got a great makeup gift for you. Take your sweetie to the Leoncourt Rocks. For $250 a person, you can take them out to meet those two people and those 30 police guards, and you can walk around those 37 rocks. Man, nothing says romance like that, right? Why are these rocks causing such a problem? Well, the problem is Japan wants access to this property that used to be theirs, and South Korea doesn't want to give them access. And part of that access includes fishing rights. See, if you, if you own the rocks, then you, then you have the fishing rights around the rocks. And there's also believed to be lots of natural gas resources there on the rocks. And so part of it is history. It used to be Japan's. And, and part of it is money. Japan would like to have some of the money as well. So you have this problem amongst these rocks. You have this arguing going on about rocks. And you say, ah, oh, come on, let's... What's the big deal? It's, it's just a bunch of rocks. 
Well, this past week, an 86-year-old man who lives near to one of the Leon Court Rocks, lives on another island, he said this to a journalist. It used to be that young people in the general public didn't really care. Recently, there's been a backlash against South Korea's control. As Japanese, our blood boils. I didn't sound like good news, right? <laughs> Boiling blood? I mean, that, that sounds like a serious conflict. When your blood boils, it's, it's not a good thing, is it? But we don't know about that, right? Because there's never any boiling blood in our marriages, right? That never happens. There's never any fighting or arguing in our homes. Is there? There's no conflict or there. We're never arguing about money at work. We, we don't argue over history in our country, do we? Nobody ever forgets a Valentine's Day gift, do they? Now, the truth is, if we think about it in our homes, at work, at school, just about everywhere else in the world, there is conflict and people not getting along over rocks. All of our rocks look different. The, the rocks in the Sea of Japan are completely different from the rocks in our home, but, but there are rocks in our lives that cause us to not get along. So how can that change? How can we have less conflict in our marriages, less conflict in our homes, less conflict at work and at school and, and in our community and in the world? How is it that we can do a better job of getting along with one another? Well, let's find out this morning. We're going to look at Philippians 2. We're beginning with verse 5. Paul is, oh, I forgot about that picture. Sorry, that was a really good picture too. Man, that was a good one. I worked on it. I had to go find the smiley face. All right, well, you can see that lady was mad and she had a smiley face. Well, we'll get to it later. Paul said this in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, right before he wrote this sentence, Paul said this, and we saw this last week, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Paul says if you're a Christian, you need to be pursuing humility. Well, what is humility? Well, we used this definition a few weeks ago from C.S. Lewis. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. A humble person is, is not always fighting to get their way. A humble person is looking for ways to serve other people. Now, someone might hear that word humility and they might say, you know, that's, that's noble. That's a nice. Humility sounds like a really good thing. But you know what? It doesn't work in the real world. <laughs> humility doesn't work in the real world. A person might say, humility doesn't work because humility doesn't get me on the team. Humility is not one of those things that's going to help me be valedictorian. Humility is not going to help me get a job or get a promotion. Now, we have a different idea of humility in our culture. When people think of humility, they say, that can't be right because you know what? Man, I'm supposed to be looking out for number one. I'm supposed to be taking the bull by the horns. I'm supposed to be creating my own destiny. Humility. <laughs> Considering other people as more significant than I consider myself, where in the world is Paul getting that? It's a good question, right? Where is Paul 
getting all of this stuff about humility? Where is Paul getting this thing where we're supposed to serve others and, and not fight to get our way? Where is he getting that? He's getting it in one place, and really he's getting it with one person. All of it comes from Jesus. The attitude of humility, the, the concept of humility is most perfectly seen in Jesus Christ. And when it comes down to it, we kind of have two different attitudes we're going to have. On any given day, we're going to have a, a couple of different attitudes we're going to have. We're either going to have the attitude of Christ, which is driven by humility, or we're going to have the attitude that's not like Christ, which is driven by pride. And so if Christ is driving the humility train, then who's driving the pride train? Well, there is an engineer. We've already heard about him this morning in the children's sermon, but I will remind you again with these words from Jesus. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A murderer, a liar, full of of pride and and self-interest. That is the very nature of the enemy. That is the very attitude of the enemy. That is the attitude that is the opposite of having the attitude of Christ. And so we could see we don't want to have anything to do with, with that attitude. We want to stay as far away as we can from the attitude of pride, the attitude of the enemy. And so Paul's grabbing a huge megaphone of grace, and he's saying, look, have the attitude of Christ. Don't have the other attitude. Have the attitude of Christ. And what kind of attitude did Jesus have? What kind of attitude did Christ have? Well, let's see. Look at verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Have you ever heard the story of the man whose car broke down in front of the monastery. He went up to the monastery to get some help, and they took him inside, and, and they fed him a meal, and, and they fixed his car, and they didn't let him, let him stay the night. And during the night, he heard the strangest sound he had ever heard in his life. And when he woke up the next morning, he was so bothered, and he went to the monks, and he said, what in the world was that sound last night? And they said, well, we, we can't tell you what that sound is because you're not... A monk. The man was bothered. He, he had to know. So he turned to the monks and he said, well, what do I have to do to become a monk? And this was their instructions. You must travel the earth and tell us exactly how many blades of grass are on the earth and the exact number of sand pebbles on the earth. When you find these numbers, you will become a monk. So the man took off. Forty-six years later, after lots of travel and a lot of royal walking, he, he came back to the monks and he said, all right, I finally, I've, I've got the answers for you. And these were the answers he gave. He said, there are 145,236,284,232 blades of grass. And there are 231 sand pebbles on the earth. Yeah, I had to look all that stuff up. I didn't know what those words and no numbers meant. So the monks congratulated him. They, they gave him a key. And they said, go over to that door, open that door, and you're going to find out what the sound was that you heard that you want to know so bad. And so the man took the key, went over, he opened up the door, and behind the wooden door was a stone door with another lock. 
And so he asked the monks for that key, and they gave him that key, and he opened the stone door. And behind the stone door was another door made of ruby. And so he got the key, and he opened the ruby door, and, and on and on this went until he had been through a topaz door and a silver door and an amethyst door and, and all these different doors. And finally came to the last door, and the monks gave him the key, and he opened up the door. And he looked, and he was amazed to find out that the strange sound was actually I'm sorry, I can't tell you because you're not a monk. Isn't that terrible? God, it's awful. But you'll love me when you get to do that at work this week. Throw that little joke out and everybody's going to be upset with you. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man when he lived on this earth. How is that possible? I can't tell you because you're not a monk. In other words, I cannot physiologically explain it to you. I can't mathematically and practically explain to you how Jesus, when he was on this earth, was fully God and fully man. But I know that it is true. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wrote these words about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, Paul and the writer of Hebrews wrote these words. He is the image of the invisible God. God has spoken to us in his Son, and he is the exact representation of his nature. The image, the exact representation of God. One day when Jesus was praying, he said this, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus was and is God, and Jesus was with God from eternity past. That is the huge, gigantic message of the Bible. He was fully God, and he was fully man, and can I explain that to you in physical terminology that makes all of it make sense? No, I can't. It is a strange sound as the man experienced in the monastery. It's it's something that cannot be explained in perfect human terminology. But just because I can't explain it perfectly in human terminology that makes total sense to us doesn't mean it's not true. No. Just because I can't explain it doesn't mean it's not true. Billy Graham said this about the work of the Holy Spirit. I can't see the wind, but I can see the effects of the wind. I can't explain in in perfect human terminology how Jesus was fully God and and fully man, but when I look back over the last 2,000 years of history, I am confident that he was. I'm confident that it is true. We'll look at that confidence in just a moment. But why does this matter? Why does this fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, why, why does it matter? Well, it matters because eternal life is not like going to the Olympics. You can't just take your camera and your visa card. There's there's more to it than that. You see, the, the payment, the entrance to eternal life cannot be purchased with the things of this earth. In fact, the only way to enter into eternity is there has to be a perfect substitute to let us in. There has to be a a perfect sacrifice. A a perfect person is the only way that that we can make it into heaven. The payment is perfection. But there's kind of a problem, right? Nobody is perfect. 
Nobody is perfect except Jesus. You see, Jesus was and is perfect. And so therefore, he, he immediately qualifies to be the payment. He immediately qualifies to be the substitute. But no human being is able to be perfect on their own, right? I mean, I don't know. Do you have any perfect people at your house? Don't raise your hand. I know you're tempted. Do you have any perfect people at work, at school, or anywhere else? No. See, there's no one who's perfect because humans can't be perfect on their own. And so the only way Jesus could be perfect is if he also had the, the actual character of God. Why? Because only God is perfect. Nobody else is perfect. And so Jesus Christ is this human who came, and Jesus Christ is God. He is fully God. He is fully man, and he is the perfect sacrifice. Paul's writing to the church. He, he wants them to understand this. He wants them to know that Jesus Christ is the exact form, shape, and representation of God. All the elemental basic aspects of who God is are found in Jesus Christ. He is fully God and he is fully man. And Paul's writing this because he wants them to see something. See, Jesus was divine. Jesus was fully God, but he did not consider his equality with God something that he was supposed to grasp. See, Jesus is the only perfect person to ever walk this earth, and Jesus is fully God, but he did not cling to his divinity as a trophy or a prize that nobody else can have. He did not selfishly cling to his divinity. And Paul says we need to have the same kind of attitude in our lives. John MacArthur puts it this way. It is that attitude of selfless giving of oneself and one's possessions, power, and privileges that should characterize all who belong to Christ. They should be willing to loosen their grip on the blessings they have, which they have solely because of God. So, how are you doing at keeping a loose grip on your blessings? How are you doing at keeping a loose grip on your money? What about your house, your car, your investments, your family, your health, your intelligence, your, your skills, your gifts. Think of everything you have and everything you own. How are you doing at keeping a loose grip on those things so that they might be quickly used for the glory of God? You see, Jesus did not hang on to and, and cling to his divinity selfishly and say, no, nobody else can have this. In fact, we see a complete different picture. We, we see Jesus not clinging to it. We see Jesus not being selfish. And so what did he do? Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Now this emptying doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of being God. That would make him less God, and, and that's not possible. He, he can't be less God. And so what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, let me see if I can try to explain this in, in hopefully a simple way. Imagine, if you will, a king. And the king dresses up as a, a beggar, a, a common person, and he, he goes out among the common people because he, he wants to find out more of what they need. He wants to know how he can serve them better. 
His appearance as a commoner out in the village makes him look completely different than he did in the palace. He was disguised. He was unrecognizable. But his disguise didn't make him any less the king. And so the king's out in the village one day and and he hears the cries of a child somewhere in the near distance. And he goes outside of the village and he finds that there's a child that has fallen off a bridge on the river outside of the village and the child is out in the middle of the water and that child is drowning fast. So the king, he, he makes his way to the river and when he gets to the shore, he, he grabs an old limb that's sitting there and he jumps out in the water and he makes his way out to where the child is about to go under. And he, he grabs the child and he calms the child and he tells the child to hang on to that old limb. And the child grabs on, and then the king grabs on, and when the king grabs on, that that limb begins to sink. It it doesn't float anymore. And so the king takes his arms off the limb, and he tells the child to to cling to that limb. And and the limb begins to float, and, and the king pushes the child and starts moving him toward the shore. But the current's too strong, and he's too tired. And the child eventually floats and, and kicks his way over to the shore, but But the king disappears under the current. That king dressed up as a commoner to go and and find out the needs of the people, how he can serve them better. And ultimately it led to him losing his life. That person may have been dressed as a commoner, but on that day in that story, that child was saved by the king. He was rescued by the king. Didn't look like the king, but it was the king. What Paul is writing to the church is he's trying to tell them, look, Jesus emptied himself of anything that would prevent him from glorifying God. And he emptied himself of anything that would prevent him from rescuing you. That's what Paul wants him to get. He wants them to see that Jesus didn't selfishly cling to his divinity, but he emptied himself of anything that would prevent him from rescuing you. Anything that would prevent him from glorifying God. And Paul's writing to us and he says, you need to have the same kind of attitude. We need to do everything we can to to empty ourselves of anything that hinders us from glorifying God, from bringing attention and fame to God. So the question for our hearts is, how are we doing that? What do you need to empty yourself of this morning? What is it that you are prizing more than God? What trophy of life are you refusing to give up for the glory of God? What TV shows or movies or sports teams or or hobbies bring you more satisfaction than the God who has rescued your life? What selfish behavior toward your husband or your wife or your children or your parents are, are you living in right now so that God is not being glorified in your home and in your marriage and in your family? What recognition are you trying to achieve at work that's preventing God from being glorified in your life. Jesus emptied himself of anything that would hinder him from glorifying God and rescuing us. And that's not all he did. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
See, the reason my story didn't really match up is because Jesus didn't just jump in a river to save us. Jesus was publicly humiliated. Jesus was publicly tortured. Jesus was publicly executed and crucified for things he didn't even do. Jesus was executed and crucified on the cross for things that we did. He was crucified for our sin, not for his, but for my sin and for your sin. The cross was one of the most brutal ways a person could die. In fact, in in Roman culture, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified because it was considered so awful. And the Jews believed even beyond legal realms that if you were crucified, the very curse of God had been brought on your life. you got to love the irony, right? They believed the cross was a curse. And in actuality, Jesus Christ, through the cross, lifted the curse of sin. He lifted the penalty and the punishment of our lives. So what does all of this have to do with rocks? What does this have to do with arguments and conflicts at home? What does this have to do with with me and you getting along with other people? Back in the 20s, there was a a pastor named Dr. James Allen Francis. He preached a sermon, and a little essay was drawn from his sermon. You may have seen it or heard it before. It goes like this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, He grew up in another obscure village. He worked at a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held office. He never owned a home. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did any of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. Although he walked the land over and over, curing the sick, giving sight to the blind, healing the lame, and raising people from the dead, the top established religious leaders turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was spat upon, flogged, and ridiculed. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, the executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, and that was his robe. When he was dead, he was laid in a barred grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as has that one solitary life. Jesus Christ gave his one solitary life for you. He has completely Change the world. He has completely changed history. And he did it all with two motivations the glory of his Father 
and the rescue of your soul. You see, Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. And Paul is writing to us and telling us this so that we will not fight over rocks. He wants us to see that the conflict in life and the arguments in life and the disagreements in life and the inability for us to get along all comes back to Jesus. And we don't fight over the rocks. And we fight hard to get along because Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. See, Paul is crying out to us, stop fighting to get your way. He's telling us, fight harder. Let your desires be for God's glory and God's fame and God's attention. In other words, what he's saying is this, have the attitude of Christ. Why? Why do we need to have the attitude of Christ? Well, Because the attitude of Christ is the only attitude that leads to eternal life. And the attitude of Christ is the only attitude that can help your heart, but also it is the only attitude that can save your soul. 